You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast, your guide to the climbing community. Most climbers know the name Royal Robbins, but how much do you really know about this legendary figure in American climbing? Writer and editor David Smart has written a new award-winning biography of Royal called Royal Robbins, the American Climber. The AAC sat down with David to discuss how Royal's revolutionary years in Yosemite fits into the grander scheme of climbing history. The undervalued climbs from Royal's life, his writerly intellectualism, bringing nuts to the U.S. to replace pitons, his famed frenemy Warren Harding, and his mixed feelings around bolting throughout his career. Dive into the episode to learn more about one of climbing history's biggest personalities. I'm your host, Hannah Provo. Here's the beta. Presented by Adidas Terex, a global leader in the outdoor sporting goods industry. With the mission to enable all humans to live a more connected, conscious, and adventurous life, Adidas Terex combines high-performance technologies with fashion-forward designs to weather the forces of nature and inspire every human being to find their own summits. Since 1981, outdoor research has created trusted apparel, accessories, and equipment for you to thrive outside. Their award-winning outdoor gear is meticulously researched and tested for outdoor enthusiasts and military users around the globe. Grounded in their values of curiosity, passion, innovation, collaboration, and community, OR strives to create space for all in the outdoors. OR celebrates wins outside at every level, together with their ambassadors, nonprofit partners, and employees. Check them out at outdoorresearch.com. Hi, David. Welcome to the AAC podcast. Could we start off with um, an introduction? Tell us about yourself. Well, uh, my name's David Smart. I'm a, an author, an editor, a climber. been climbing for 45 years. So I started in the mid-70s, and uh, I'm still very active climbing now in Canadian Rockies and Eastern Canada. I've traveled a lot. I'm, I've been a magazine editor for 30 years and, and an author. I've written guidebooks, memoir, novels, and three autobiographies of climbers, of which Royal Robbins, the American Climber, is my third. I've been uh, lucky enough to uh, have some of my work honored by the American Alpine Club with the H. Adams Carter Award, the Boardman Tasker uh, Award for Mountain Literature at, in, from the UK, and uh, the Banff Mountain Film Festival, who just gave the uh, Royal Robbins, the American Climber, the Climbing Literature Award for this year. That is so awesome. I, I love like the relevance of our conversation just as that has happened. Yeah, because we're going to be talking about your newest book, Royal Robbins, The American Climber, today in lots of detail. One of the great things about this is we have the AAC has a legacy series where we're, you know, capturing interviews with some of America's most important climbers before they pass on. But we didn't get to do that with Royal. So we're going to be able to hopefully kind of mine you for all the information we can get about Royal Robbins. Sure, sure. I know the, uh, the, that great generation of American climbers is, uh, there are many, 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 many people still alive, obviously, who climbed with a new Royal. And almost everyone who knew Royal had a story about him. Nobody said I met Royal. And, uh, you know, he didn't make much of an impression or hardly anyone says that. And, you know, I interviewed Glenn Denny, who was on the initial attempts on the North America wall with uh, Royal. And uh, he passed away before the uh, before the book could be published, but early enough to uh, contribute some photographs. Yeah, that's so awesome to be able to get such important people and Royal's life involved. So let's just start with like, where did the idea for this project come from? And kind of as an iterative question, what elements of Royal's life first caught your attention? Well. I those are those are uh, hard hard to answer questions simply because Royal is so absolutely pervasive in climbing 
that, uh, you know, when did I first hear about Royal Robbins or, or know what he was doing? You know, uh, much of my, my first years of climbing were like those of many people, even now focused on getting myself to Yosemite so I could try the Northwest face of half dome or, you know, the nose and, and these kinds of routes, of course, Royals, Royal hadn't made the first ascent of the nose, but he made the first continuous ascent. And so, and then I, I saw, I remember as, as a young man seeing pictures of him in uh, the book, Galen Rowell put together the vertical world of Yosemite and thinking like in 1976, like the late seventies, gosh, these guys, they look so unrelatably old fashioned with their crew cuts because it was not cool to have a crew cut in climbing in the late seventies. But now, of course, I look at it and they seem so modern in their approach and, and in their attitudes. I feel so much closer, partly as a biographer, you get very close to your subjects. So when I first became aware of him, I hardly know that there was time in, in climbing where I wasn't somehow aware of him. And he was definitely the one name everyone knew from that scene, right? Even if you knew. Nobody else, you knew who Royal was and importantly, what he looked like because he was one of the first sort of climbers to, to be a person of history with a recognizable image or a, in American climbing. In Europe, it's different. And that's, uh, I've climbed quite a lot in, in the Alps, particularly the Eastern Alps, I should say. I haven't really climbed that much in the Western Alps in the Dolomites and, and parts of Germany and Austria. And so my, my, vision for doing these uh, these biographies was to do people who were absolutely the most consequential people in the history of climbing. And I started with the Austrian soloist Paul Preuss, who is a, a fabulously important person of like, as important as anyone else who ever climbed in, in the Alps for inventing climbing style, inventing the idea that there was something called rock climbing and something called alpinism that were two different pursuits. One was a pursuit to do a, a route of a certain kind. The other pursuit of, in his view, at least reaching the summit via, you know, this or that route, but that both things had the same rules. Now, very few people, even in his circle, lived up to his rules, but he was very, very influential that way. And he was a tremendous free soloist. In the context of his age, a greater free soloist than uh, Alex Hall would be now. Of course, the technical difficulty of um, of what he was doing was so much less than what Alex does. I mean, you're basically talking about somebody who was able to on-site free solo the first ascent of the hardest free climb yet done in the Dolomites. And so, and, and it's not so much that he did those things as he influenced people, you know. Reinhold Messner describes him as the greatest philosopher we've ever had. Very, very important person in the foundation of modern climbing. And then after that, I was looking for who came next as, these, as an enormous figure who you know, shaped climbing and took it in the, the next direction. And that for me was the Italian climber, Emilio Comici, who sort of, you know, you get into a more complicated scene by the 1930s where there are different groups of people doing similar things, but it's arguable that Komichi was invented big wall climbing. The idea that you'd find a route that was too big, you know, you knew you weren't going to make it up in a day that it was like, and that wasn't just because it was a long, long ridge, but because of intense uh, technical difficulties, hard uh, ape climbing, although Komichi himself was a tremendous uh, free soloist. He was the only person who put up the first ascent of one of the great north faces of the Alps and then went back and soloed it as well. And so, you know, you saw the invention of rock climbing or technical climbing, the concept of the importance of rules. And then the first, and like in Preuss's case, the absolute, you know, denial of the validity of the use of, of pitons are weighting the rope in any way whatsoever. So down climbing versus rappelling. And uh, so he had these ideas that basically the First World War happened and the Eastern Alps were bombarded and gassed with uh, poisonous gases and 
shot at and fought over. And so the idea that you could destroy them with pitons kind of became a little bit, seemed a little bit silly to some people. And so pitons started being used a lot by Colmici, although he never used bolts. And who took this notion of, how did this notion of big wall climbing, really d difficult, sustained climbing, and move it into this new world context? You know, Alan Steck in 1947 had a tremendously important trip to the, for uh, the history of American climbing to the Alps, where he climbed Comici's uh, north face of the Chima Grande and the northwest well-known, but equally, or if not more difficult, Comici route on the northwest face of the Chivata. And those, I, th there were no climbs like that in the United States at the time. It's not that there were not, that there were no hard climbs, but nothing on that scale. And Steck brought it back in with John Salathe, the Swiss-American climber, whose climbing was all America. Yet Salathe had not climbed in Europe before he he came to America. And they climbed the north face of the, uh, as it was called, uh, the, the Sentinel, which became known as the Steck Salathe, over many days, a route very much like a Dolomite's route, directly inspired by that. And so I was looking for who was the central figure in moving the focus of world climbing to the new world, to this American setting where, you know, that John Muir's uh, Leap No Trace ethic was the, you know, was the, the you know, groundwork of, of what was and turned Yosemite from a place that the American Alpine Journal did not write about. Okay. And James, or like, they would write like, yeah, well, you know, there's some scrambling type peaks, like, you know, you hike 20 miles and I, I mean, not 20 miles, but you know, their, their interest was not the valley itself, it was the peaks in the, in the surrounding area, if they wrote about it, because their focus really was, was the Tetons, the Gunks and the Tetons. And people were well aware there was other climbing elsewhere, but the real cultural centers, the centers of energy were like the Tetons, which most resembled the Western Alps. You know, like the, the big rambling kind of uh, more alpine kind of appearing, appearing uh, peaks, and you know the the Gunks was a place of such importance for rock climbing that you know Yvonne Schuinard, you know, he's in California, but he goes to the Gunks to kind of climb. It's kind of hard to imagine. You know, the Gunks are wonderful. I've spent so much time there, but you know that. That was the, those were the options. Like if you really want to not just climb on your own, but really enter the climbing culture and interact with that. Um, and James Ramsey Ullman, the, you know, the great, greatest American climbing author until, I don't know, 19, 1970 perhaps, or well, maybe, maybe not that late, but he was incredibly important. And he wrote in a book where he was sort of effectively summarizing the summarizing the climbing options that were available. You know, he goes through the Tetons and, you know, Bitterroot Mountains and all these like fairly obscure mountain ranges in Utah and so on. It's like, oh yeah, you could get in here and there's like some wonderful ridges and so on. Then he gets to Yosemite and he says, Well, there may be some good rock climbing in the immediate vicinity of Yosemite Falls, right? So it's like, and then you get, you know, Royal Robbins and his group, and they move that, they turn Yosemite into this mythological garden of climbing gods. They give the world, the world center of rock climbing, that Chamonix, the Dolomites are kind of diffuse. You know, you couldn't say, you know, Bolzano or Cortina, they're not like, world centers of rock climbing, although many of the world's greatest rock climbs are, are you know, in, in that vicinity. And Royal Robbins just emerged as the trendsetter, the creator of, of this reality who took the fact that, you know, even, you know, like that many people, they climbed in Yosemite, but it was somehow still just rock climbing and limited in its scope and so on. It, he didn't have the option when he started to do other things or go other places. He came from very limited means. And 
you know, when he walked up to, uh, I think, one of the greatest questions ever asked in, in the history of American climbing is when he, at, I guess, 18, he makes his first serious trip to Yosemite Valley to climb. And he tracks down Alan Steck in his campsite and asks him if there's anything good to climb in Yosemite. And it was a question that Royal eventually answered for himself. But then for everyone else, as far as that's concerned. So it was really that who came up, who was next? Because there are many climbers who do things better than people who originate a certain style or approach. You know, assistants are often superior to do do technically superior work to to their masters. But the work of the the originality of of what the first person to do it had like that it, that initial vision and so on is just so undeniable in, in Royal's case. So he just seemed like an absolute giant to me. And people who knew him and people who could assess this agreed with me about it. So that's sort of how I how I decided I wanted to write about Royal. It's a long story. <laughs> no, thank you for the, all that context. I think that's really important, I think, for a lot of people who, you know, maybe know Royal's name because it is so pervasive, but not necessarily know how he fits into the larger scale of like climbing from the very beginning. So I really appreciate the context. One of the things that I really wanted to ask you about is kind of like, you know, you were so immersed in his story. What were some of the surprising things that you learned about Royal? Or things that you felt like don't normally get, you know, enough attention about his resume, his life. Well, I think the uh, the complexity of his like the Appalachian upbringing and the degree to which he was dependent on his mother, and uh, you know, he survived abuse from various quarters, including the system, as it were. You know, the 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 crushing kind of. Poverty, few people have, few people are ever come out stronger from it or, or are ennobled in any way by it. But he just was kind of did his best and succeeded in being indomitable that way, even as a child. You know, I knew something about that, but I didn't know the degree to which, you know, he'd suffered as a, as a child. That was surprising to me. Another thing that surprised me, but I been kind of had this intimated to me by a couple of people, was his friendship with Warren Harding that lasted his entire life. And, you know, his respect and how difficult the whole episode with the Don Wall was for him, where he kind of, he wrote that he was extremely ambivalent about removing the bolts. And we all know that he stopped because he thought the climbing was actually pretty hard. But that, you know, he was one of the last people outside of Warren's immediate family to visit him before uh, before he died. I mean, I don't know how many people, but he, to be more accurate, he, he visited him shortly before he died. And that he never really agreed with Warren about everything by any means. You know, he disagreed with him. And they had very different personal styles of getting along in the world, but uh, that they remained even like even like not long after the Don Wall, Warren came and stayed at Royal's house. And this whole they were they were sort of frenemies, as people say now, for a lot of their career, and disagreed about how climbing should unfold. But he 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 didn't like despise or really resent Warren in any significant way. So there there was that. I think an interesting thing about Royal was that he always kind of wanted to be, and and I I guess I wasn't super surprised by this, but I, I certainly didn't know it. He he wanted to be an alpinist. And alpinism is a, it's a slightly different animal. And some people can reverse in, engineer basic skills you need for being efficient in the Alpine from a rock climbing background, and some people can't. And a lot of the things, like if you're setting out to be an alpinist, you don't first learn how to climb 511 and, and reverse engineer how to walk across a snow slope from that. 
or how to read snow conditions or how to do safely third class on loose rock. But Roy was kind of doing that. And like people were like, they were often surprised by how aggressive he was on rock. And then because people like sort of said, he might not have been the fastest climber, but he was unstoppable. He just like, you know, relentless upward motion. But a lot of people just sort of like, they recorded that they'd get to an easy snow slope and Royal would kind of, you know, slowly pick his way across. Like it wasn't really uncertain, you know, but the thing about Royal was there's always another, was always another surprise because people said that on the, you know, John Hudson from the partner from the Gunks, who uh, climbed a new route with Royal on, for some reason, the name of the peak is not coming to me right the second, commented that Royal was very, very tentative on snow. And then a few weeks later, Royal does the first solo of the North Face of Mount Edith Cabell, where the last, where there's lots of climbing on, on glaciers and, and can be lots on snow. And the last hundred meters, like right at the top of this really like kind of loose, lots of rockfall kind of uh, route, one of, the prob- one of the hardest North Faces in the Rockies at the time. The last hundred meters right at the top are all what would have been relatively technical snow and ice climbing. <laughs> so, you know, he could he could surprise people a lot. And then he kept trying to like kind of get into like doing different alpine type type things. And he described it as his itch. And he, he knew his own, he didn't, if Royal was, if anything, was brutally honest with himself. And so he uh, he knew his, where his limitations were, but he didn't. He didn't back off on that, but he kept working on it. And the other thing, final thing was how much Royal wrote. You look at all the things he did, introducing big wall climbing to Yosemite. Then when he was done with that and pitons were having an impact or had already had an impact on, on cracks, he introduced clean climbing. He was one of the people who introduced what became known as the Yosemite decimal system. Uh, you know, the obsession with free climbing old eight routes, like a lot of things really kind of either came directly from him or he was one of the people leading the charge. And he was also, I believe, one of the great mountain writers in America. Like he wrote so much that got published, so much that had influence, not just his books, but his, you know, his opinions about things. People sought his opinions. He changed his writing style. It was uh, it was always energetic and, and vibrant and I mean, often like, you know, professional writers look at some of the things he did because he was not, he he had no formal education. So he wrote with a level of, of energy and freedom sometimes that, you know, professional writers or, or people who'd been to college and been taught there was a way to do it, kind of, they giggled at it. But I mean, I think it's just, you know, it's an incredible over of writing. And he wrote 10 times as much that he he actually worked on, worked up into articles or filled journals with ideas and observations that he never even intended to publish. So it's a, it's an incredible corpus of, of material, just the, the uh, written stuff that was published. Yeah, for sure. I, okay. So much to cover there. (laughs) I guess I want to, one thing I was specifically hoping to ask you about was I felt like my experience of the book, especially as like part of a younger generation whose access to the stories of Royal Robbins like started with like, you know, the quick little snippet in Valley Uprising, right? That paints him as like just the this enemy specifically, not a frenemy of Harding and that it kind of reduces him into the Valley Christians <laughs> aesthetic thing that like his mm-hmm. philosophy of no bolts and all of this stuff. And the way you really unpack both, he had a lifelong friendship with Harding that he had a lot of more ambivalence about the bolting question and com- complexities around the hypocrisy of that and some of his own bolting practices and that sort of thing. I just th- felt like you did a really good job of like unpacking that just how much more there was to that than I think a lot of mm. modern climbers think of because they do think of him as just, you know, this one noted like, I'm going to go chop the bolts on the Donwall sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, he was definitely, he was ambivalent about having to chop the bolts on the dawn wall. Like he felt like people and people were, they were coming to him saying, this is terrible and someone has to do something about this. And you're the person who has to do something about it. 
and he reacted to that. He was also he also had his own feelings that it wasn't the right kind of thing to do, and other people had talked about doing this this way. And but you know, two weeks after the first descent of the Dawn Wall, he wrote an article on how great it was that uh, Warren Hardy, you know, didn't just do what everyone wanted him to, that he was a maverick. And, you know, shortly after being on the Dawn Wall, Hardy wrote an article that was later reprinted in Vertical World of Yosemite about how much, how fun it was just to hang out in Camp War with all of his old friends, including Chuck Pratt, who was uh, one of, you know, Royal's tightest inner circle. Now, Warren had other moods as well, like alcohol is a two-stage intoxicant, right? You know, stage one, you're everybody's friend. And with some people, stage two, you're not. So, but like the, the Valley Christians thing and the, all that stuff, Royal loved Downward Bound. He laughed like the uh, Harding's book where, where Harding first called Royal the Valley, or not for the first time, but used that Valley Christians metaphor and language a lot accused Royal of like, in the end, wanting to chase him down and kill him and stuff like that. Royal laughed when he read that. He thought it was funny. <laughs> and uh, so it did definitely did, didn't fall out quite the same way as it's a it makes a nice story. And certainly like Warren climbed a lot after that, and not directly in Yosemite Valley, but Royal did. He climbed a lot in Yosemite and, you know, he, he, uh, you know, so neither of them kind of left the scene. Harding's main partner uh, over the next few years climbing was Galen Rowell, like who was central to the the valley scene and not at all somebody who was seen as like sort of a, a junior partner to anybody, mm -hmm. and certainly not somebody who's had a relentless taste for placing bolts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's just way more complicated than I think the story gets reduced to when it's you know just thrown about and like the climbing community. So I thought that was really an interesting Thanks. element. And I did want to ask you also about Royal as a writer. And you started telling us about that. Do you have any more kind of thoughts on that topic? Sure. Uh, a big thing to remember about Royal is he was much like uh, Emilio Comici. He was self-educated. He was a somebody from working class situation in that, you know, really strictest sense of the word who lived through books and reading from, uh, you know, from his infancy, you know, as an escape. Uh, he read, you know, all kinds of things, adventure books, animal books. He loved Western films. Uh, he went to a theater where, as a kid, dedicated to only showing Westerns, which shows how many of them there were. And he really lived through this stuff. And then when he met people, college kids, climbing, his his friends, you know, Hoover and the, these guys. And they started talking about books and playing classical music on radio while they're driving to climbing. He picked that stuff up very quickly as an opportunity to, you know, to improve his life and as a, a, a lens into a world of, of meaning and, and culture and philosophy that, you know, a lot of like, if you go to college and you're you had to take these courses, then a book like by, uh, you know, these authors he was reading, like it was at the time of the first Amer cheap American translations of Jean-Paul Sartre and, you know, the existentialists, you know, Albert Camus novels and so on. He bought those and he ate them up and he'd be at the crag and he'd ask these guys, you know, who were, they were uh, taking courses in the, in the university, you know, partly because when you take courses in university, it was often, not always, but it was often the case that you've been brought up to do that, to go through school and then to be in college. But Royal just thought this stuff is like, this is important stuff that you should know. You should take this seriously, maybe adapt this to your own life. And he'd say, tell them like, guess what? I'm an existentialist. Are you an existentialist? And they'd kind of roll their eyes. It's like, you know, yeah, I have to take French literature 101 or whatever. But Royal, he didn't have that luxury and he had that freshness of vision picking things up. And some of the writing he did has like, it has these surprising juxtapositions that like, you know, where he'll like, you know, say 
somebody reminds me of like on the North America wall, it's, uh, you know, somebody is a cross between Jack London and a some Southern writer or something. And you go, how can you even cross it? That's not a cross, Royal. But in his mind, it's going, it's fitting together, but there's a freshness to it. You know, people did roll their eyes, but it was new, a new kind of mountain writing. And then when he, he wrote about the prow or the man, and yeah, even more notably, the uh, first ascent of Tisa'ak, where he's writing in first person as some, as his climbing part, Peterson, well, Peterson, and like his, like getting into like the mindset of his climbing partner and how he's driving, he's being driven mad by Royal, not literally driven mad, but really deeply annoyed by Royal's behavior. And then he's writing as himself, but he's portraying himself as kind of ridiculous. It's like, it's, it's an ex, sort of an experimental form of, of writing that if you look at some of the other like experimental forms of writing going on in uh, the US in you know, the mid-60s, it actually uses a few of those tricks that you, you see and it's very fresh. And, you know, he has, he, he's always got the thesaurus open and he's got new words and, and stuff like that. So I think it's, it was pretty exciting. And some of the judges, you know, you had very intellectual, well-educated people, not all of them. And, you know, in climbing, like people like with very high degree of knowledge about you know, the high aesthetics of, of everything. And Royal got that on his own and he applied it as uh, with enthusiasm, with gusto. So, I, yeah, I think it's great. You see, he changes. And like the piece, uh, another great piece by him was his description of uh, climbing a dream of white horses in, uh, in North Wales at Anglesey that he did for classic rock or for hard rock, uh, Ken Wilson's British book. It's so like, he, it's so fresh as a description of this very strange flowing rock there and what it's like to climb on it. And his capacity to assess the, uh, the psychology of some of his friends, like Ken Wilson, particularly the editor of Mount Magazine at the time, was the edit, also the editor of Hard Rock. I bet they were surprised. You know, Ken had passed away by the time I was doing my research, but I did get my hand on, hands on some of his correspondence with with Royal. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not to anyone's taste and certain everyone's taste, I should say. And, and that writing, it defies some of the, uh, I bound rules of how you're supposed to express yourself as climb, but I think it's great. Yeah. I just think that's such an, uh, iconic element of Royal's character is the intellectual literariness and yeah. obsession with classical music. I remember I wrote an article about proboscis, which involved some description of that, that first ascent that in somebody, I think I, I interviewed Jim McCarthy for it. And he like emphasized that Leighton Core and Royal Robbins got in a fight about music. Yes. Yeah. And I just like thought that that was so funny. And, and just like how much of the stories people tell about him was emphasizing his his really particular opinions about culture and literature and all that kind of side of him, which I think is really unique. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, I don't want to like hold up a conversation or anything, but Royal, he, when he picked up his interest in, in classical music, he did from, um, you know, people, Joe Fitch and, uh, and all these, these guys who he was climbing with. It was kind of, I'd have to say it was kind of a, like it was early sixties. It was not a point where like a lot of like the better aspects of like rock and roll had had not kind of taken root in the radio. He did change. So when you look at the the music that was playing on the radio, you know the top tunes on the radio in like 1961, 1960 in the U.S. I mean, it's all pretty awful, right? Like so, there there isn't like a really big pop, you know, popular music. You know, there is some some jazz jazz music, but you know, this was for Royal classical music was, was accessible. 
And he, you know, people like made fun of him, like, you know, this is just like better than Mozart and so on. And there's the argument, I guess, that, you know, he was pretentious, but I think you're only pretentious if you're pretending, right? He really did love Mozart <laughs> that much, right? And like other, there have been so many other climbers who were like down through history, you know, had Stolfer, you know, Amelia Colmici, who also strove to sort of get, you know, improve his, you know, his intellectual and cultural scope, who were fascinated by classical music. To be fair to Royal, what people didn't see is that, you know, when the Beatles and things like this came along sort of later in the 60s, he really loved that stuff too. And like, you know, this his family, I tell a story about how he uh, he became almost uh, to a fault a, a fan of playing uh, the, the theme to uh, Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> so he did, it wasn't that he dismissed, I think he wasn't so much that he dismissed it out of right, out of, you, you know, sort of dismissed it completely. It's just, it's also in a, in your aesthetic or cultural growth as an individual, you have to have times when you're really focused on something difficult and you might, you know, you're young or whatever, you might be dismissive of other things that you later begin to understand more. It doesn't mean that you were wrong in loving so much what you did love, but yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a, definitely an interesting subject. And I know, I know well that story, Jim Carthy, Carthy told me that story, <laughs> the fight over rock and roll, classical music. Yeah. Okay. So to get us back to some more climbing focused stuff, because <laughs> we could talk about his writing for a long time. One thing I was really struck by was how much soloing there was in his mm. career. Can you talk about the element of soloing in Yosemite climbing history, like royal solo soloing, and kind of how that fits into the grander climbing narrative in Yosemite? Yeah, of course, in Yosemite, you know, soloing like in the just in the sense of climbing with that a rope because you don't have or know how to use one goes back to John Muir climbing Cathedral Peak and you know the Michaels with their free you know this climbing all over Yosemite up you know, these sort of some third class some easy fifth class stuff and it almost um a lot of it just going unrecorded and for Royal I think part you know he started climbing on his own. He was in high school. He he free soloed sometimes. He had these uh, unusual ways of using the rope sometimes, but he was by himself a lot because most kids they they like they might go out climbing with him once, but probably not a second time because you know he was figuring out what he was doing. He obviously was just figuring out what he was doing, and it was uh, more dangerous than just skipping school and not going climbing with him. And so I think part of the the that improvisational early American climbing tradition was just going out there and climbing on, on your own. And he definitely kind of ha invented a lot of his skills that way, just climbing by himself. And then he did some, he free soloed, especially like he soloed shorter routes a lot, you know, cracks at the bottom of Captain, you know, Ahab and these climbs. He was, he was a master and they, that whole group, you know, that whole generation of Yosemite climbers were masters of style of climbing and chimneys and off widths that, uh, like many of the short climbs were off, off widths, right? And it's kind of harder to fall out of those when you know what you're doing at a certain level, of course, at another level is very easy to hope. But there was that, and he saw that as kind of the an amazing part of climbing. And he's, you know, he's soloed the mirror wall. He soloed the East Buttress of El Capitan. I think that was the first solo of that route as well as 1200 feet long by 10 minus. It's quite a hard solo for, uh, for the time when he did it, there weren't all that many long routes in Yosemite that were hard. Uh, there were some though. And then the North Face of Edith Cabell in Canada is just absolutely mind blowing kind of achievement. But I think the line in in early days of that climbing, 
of Royals climbing, like when he was doing the free ascent, first free ascent of the open book, a wide crack as he climbed it. You can lay back it, but he climbed it as a wide crack. In at Takits, you were, there were a lot of no fall times doing it, right? Like it wasn't like today where you could just pop a cam in or whatever. There was a lot, a big part of leading was realizing that a lot of the, on a lot of the lead, you are going to have to not fall. Uh, it wasn't quite, you can't ever fall because they do fall. But and I think the lot, the line between being out on your own and not having rope and having rope was, it was harder to, was harder to distinguish at the time, but he definitely was in favor of people trying to free soul, he free soul himself quite a lot, some roots, but, uh, and he wrote, you know, in, in the first version of, uh, advent, advent in the first, his first rock climbing book, basic rock craft, he wrote a little bit about it, but he really expanded that in advanced rock craft. Like, you know, he warned people, you know, he said, yeah, it's, it's incredible and, and fun and natural way to climb, but it also has a tendency to sort of suck people into reacting to other people's, you know, praise and so on. And that's part of the danger. So he was well aware of drawing attention to himself that way, but soloing generally, like he was, it was a really big deal for him that connected him to his earliest days. And his last attempt on a big valley wall was on the climb that became Tantry trip. And it was, he was going to solo the first descent of this route. It was not to be, but yeah. Yeah. How that just so interesting. Okay. I'm also interested in perhaps a climb that you felt like as you were kind of piecing together this narrative of his life is really transformative in terms of American climbing or climbing in general, but that doesn't get that much attention in the telling of climbing history or the telling of Royal Robbins's life. Yeah. You know, there's so many potentially. I think the first ascent of Boulder Gorge, which I actually have met someone who did the route and a couple of people who say it's a terrible route. Now the bar for that's very high in 70, of course, but the that it was this weird it, it was such a royal achievement. It was, you know, he he brought with him one of the English people who he had to sort of galvanized to drop everything and come to Yosemite, because that's how Royal made partly how Royal made Yosemite climbing the center of the climbing world. He actually went out to the world and told them to come. And it was some guy who, who was there who wasn't like a top climber or anything like that. And, and redoubtable uh, uh, Liz Robbins, Nay Berkner, and him found this route. And it was going to be the first like big like multi-pitch route that was only climbed on that only clean ascent. And it's like, you can see that it's not that great. It's like at the back of this kind of gully. It's like climbs around these boulders stuck in the and it looks sort of perpetually kind of wet, dirty. And they got stuck out at night at the top and they camped out. Royal, of course, didn't care at all about doing stuff like that. And uh, he said, well, you know, it's the, the only time that I, I felt I felt lucky to have someone with me who smoked because he hated people's cigarette smoking because he had, a, he had a, uh, some matches and they could start a fire. But, you know, just as uh, Steve Roper uh, has said, you know, Boulder Gorge, which is, I think it's correct name, they should put a plaque on the bottom of it saying, here's where Royal Robin say Yosemite cracks, because it was the first multi-pitch free route to uh, be done only on nuts. And nuts at the time were something like, like when, when Yvonne Schoenart was shown what Royal had brought back from England as clean nuts that Royal was going to revolutionize American climbing with, Yvonne said, well, just looks like a pile of junk to me. And of course, Yvonne later, you know, modified his views on that. But also that it that the climate is so obviously like kind of a nothing in that great scheme of American climbing and, and Yosemite climbing. And and yet Royal is like writing about it effusively, like it's this not it's just really exciting to have this new quiet relationship to the rock. And then it was doing different moves and just making something, making that adventure out of that the same way he could make an adventure out of climbing, uh, you know, the North America wall. 
I think that's definitely, definitely pretty, was it pretty incredible, influential. Not unknown by any means, but people don't really realize it's like, here's the guy who invents big piton walls in the States. And like, and then he, uh, he go, he says, everyone stop using pitons generally. Let's conserve the cracks with nuts. So that I think was one amazing, amazing route. I think the prow on Washington column, where he starts talking about, you know, Michael Covington's discomfiture, if not outrage, <laughs> adding bolts so that people can do, more people can do the wall, right? Like it's very hard climbing, but there's sort of more bolts. It was kind of, by that point, they're looking at like the big crack lines that they could do, the big continuous ones that they saw that they were able to do, although there's always somebody who finds one nobody sees, seemed to be mostly done. And they were looking at thinner discontinuous series of cracks. And just that sense of, you know, that of on royal shoulders is Yosemite climbing becoming a thing for the world. Like it, it's like inventing, you know, how many, like it's like Picasso inventing cubism or, you know, Mozart inventing the, uh, and Royal would love that uh, comparison, the modern symphony. It's like this sense that I'm, it's not, not just me. It's this is a cultural possession of a large number of people. And he's compromising his, his uh, sense that like everything, style is just, you know, everything with this, He's playing that against this realization, right? So it's very, it's very complicated, right? And and what he's doing isn't just winging it. It's like he's reacting to big historical forces and change. And what we see is like in these creative processes in rock climbing is something that's well recognized in the European context that the north face of the Eiger and yeah, on the north face of the Chima Grande, closer to what we're talking about here today, are are great. They're they're cultural treasures like like symphonies or or paintings or whatever. They're and Royal is one of the big and like when I say he's like, you know, the American Henry sort of like the great, maybe the most consequential, because he has this sense of himself as Royal Robbins, a person of of history as well as just a climber. And he really, he's sort of omnipresent that way and is aware of himself as somebody who is, whose work is going to be that. He's, he's, he can be both humble and kind of annoyingly self-aware that he's going to have, the, what he's doing is having the biggest effect. But you know, in, if Yosemite was in, was in Italy, there'd be a, there'd be a statue of royal in, in El Cap Meadows. I can't imagine it looking up El Cap would be great. But my point isn't like that would be obviously out of sync with, you know, how Royal saw things and, you know, that the whole American climbing tradition. But, but yeah, so those are the kinds of things because as the, you know, if you look at, you know, the history of painting, you get a, a painting, you know, a great defining work of an era like some of Rembrandt's big, big pictures or, you know, Picasso's big pictures too. You see the big picture and that's the breakthrough, right? And you go, wow, one morning he got out of bed. He, you know, painted Demoiselle d'Avignon or something like that. But actually, if you really know, it's like there are hundreds of studies and suffering and consideration that go into these creations. So the question about what are the obscure climbs that come before the, the, great ones is it's a good question yeah i i really like your point about him kind of being annoyingly aware <laughs> that he's part of history i think partially because i was really struck and maybe this is just because of the climbing literature i have read I, i'm not really sure if it's just because of my limited access to that or experience with that but i was struck by 
the the way you went about giving historical context, you know, very occasionally, and it wasn't like an overwhelming thing. But, you know, there was a line you're like, and Kennedy had just been assassinated and that and you're contextualizing Royal's life into larger American history in a way that I haven't seen that much in climbing literature before. Um, I think because most of climbing literature I've read was just so focused on like, we're going to talk about this really niche culture and it felt separate. But you really positioned Royal Robbins within a larger context in the shifting culture right. of America. How did you decide what to include in the historical touch points that were important like obviously there could have been a whole range of you could have barely mentioned any historical touch points you could have in included a lot more than you did so how what was kind of the process of deciding what to include there yeah well i mean it's there are obvious things that like when you talk about the introduction of clean climbing you also have to talk about the ecological movement that that came in the wake of the summer of love and and things that were palpably part of uh, Royal's immediate environment. There were other things he was, like the say, the rise of the new right in California that he was less openly aware of because in a way it kind of that whole thing snuck up on people and was accomplished before even terms like the new right existed. The and he was somebody who was just kind of like. When you move from the Rust Belt, as he did in Ohio, because he moved out of Appalachian to Ohio to try to find war work, and then you just pick up everything and because you just can't make it work, and you go to California, you know, the early 1940s, you don't have a conscious sense that my life is now parallel to the great westward movement with all its significances, you know, described by Steinbeck or something like that. But I have that. And so I add, I add that as relevant. And in a way, like in, in America, you can live your kind of, and in my country too, in Canada, we live with less of a sense of the, um, of the importance or uh, of the uh, gravitas of historical events happening around us. We can just be us, you know, like working class Emilio Comici couldn't in extremely nationalistic Trieste could not just act like the Italian fascist country party had not taken up over the country. You know, Paul Preuss could pretend that as a Jew, he was confronted every day with you know, profound anti-Semitism. But we have kind of a luxury of not doing that. Like, you know, which Yosemite climber mentions Kennedy's visit to Yosemite? I mean, it must have been a very dramatic. I know it was very dramatic. You know, helicopters and you know the motorcade and all kinds of stuff. You know, as climbers, we're like, yeah, we're going climbing. So where it seemed. Directly relevant, like the you know the introduction of clean climbing, leave no trace. The degree to which that you know a lot of that you know was appealing and parallel at least to, and not just parallel. There were people very much involved in, in the summer of love who were climbers, and so on. I would I drew that out. Where there's things emerging that like if I look at a newspaper and the reporting on royals first ascent of the North America wall on the front of the, you know, South LA Times. And then there's also an article about the trial of Eldridge Cleaver, the Black Panther. It just captures Malaya, why that this is, people are talking about these two things. Is it, there's a society, a culture that's saying what's newsworthy, it's this and this. And then additionally, like Cleaver goes through a total transformation and joins a new right that supports Reagan and Royal, uh, you know, drifts rightward as in, later on in life as well, of course. But yeah, I mean, if it's directly relevant, you know, if Royal, you know, if somebody if Royal joins the army as a biographer, I'll try to find out what it was like, where he was, and what the atmosphere was. A lot of the work of biographers is just finding out like what people's addresses were, who they were related to. Uh, and this kind of stuff. And from that emerges a story. You know, like stories that often are 
just uh, not really gone into that seem relevant. I like to make connections between between things. So if Royal is sent to, as he was, sent to a, a detention center, I'll find out, did anyone who was sent there write a book about being there? And what was the atmosphere like? And uh, yeah, like that. It's, you know, you don't want to like also tell the history of the world through <laughs> through climbing because it's not, you know, we don't really have the, our hands on the levers of, usually have our, so some of us have, but not many of us have had our hands on the levers of great historical movements, but we're caught up in them. We react to them. We, you know, we shape them. And, you know, in a way it's like, you don't have to have art. You don't have to have big wall climbing. And that, that little not having to have it thing is sort of, the, is somehow hidden in that is the germ of why all these things are so important. Yeah. Which leads me honestly to, to my next question. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of creating this book? Like, I imagine there's just so much work <laughs> in uncovering all those little details. So I'm interested kind of in your, you know, a brief description of what I'm sure was years of work, right? Yeah. I mean, I love, I love writing. To write is it's just such a tremendous blessing in life. I don't relate at all to people who say they write in a tremendous state of, of anguish. But I, basically, I was looking at doing it. I knew some people who knew Royal and some other people in the California scene, and I started talking to them about about doing it. And people often, they have their, they have their reservations about whether, you know, whether you're qualified to do it or, or whether you're going to do a good job or, you know, what you're going to say and so on. And the thing to do basically is to tell everyone you are going to do it or you've even decided that yourself. But I was aware that the that there was a tremendous amount of material written by Royal in uh, in possession uh, at, of, uh, of the family, uh, Liz and uh, uh, Tamara, Liz is his uh, widow and uh, Tamara, his daughter, uh, were looking after that. And so I started talking to them about what I wanted to do, eventually was able to look at some of that material, you know, very much with, with their help, like, you know, without them, it couldn't have written the book. And, it, you know, it was a matter of determining, can I add something to the discourse, right? Because climbers are never going to stop talking or writing about Royal Roberts, right? <laughs> like, and uh, neither should we. And so I wanted to, like, make sure I could do that. And I was pretty certain I was gonna I was gonna have a, a good shot at that, and you know with the family's cooperation and and so many people who knew him who are still around, you know you don't you you often you know with people who are gone and gone a long time like Emilio Calvici, you know you, you assume that there's uh, you're never gonna meet a living person that that knew them. I was at a book reading in Italy, though, once and uh, was presented with a, a phone with a 103-year-old person who got the Emilio on the other end of the phone. So, so you never quite know. But And then, you know, a human, I've written a lot of different, in a, in a lot of different forms, uh, writing. And the great thing about a human's, human life, it's, it's a very basic unit of storytelling. Right. And so it's easier to begin to, you know, gather things up and to slot things in. The challenge with Royal really was the vast amount of material and numbers of people. It's a very, biography is a very human art. Like you have to, you talk to people, you know, talk to people who had some of the greatest experience, if you're doing climbing, some of the greatest experiences of their lives with that person or, you know, they were friends or, or lovers or things like that. And you just, you have to really love people and love the human story. So that's the process for me. I write every day and uh, yeah, then it got done. <laughs> and yeah, of course, I you know, the editors, Matt Sabat, particularly also from Colorado, my uh, editor was tremendously helpful 
I love working with editors and other other people from Ramir's books. So, yeah, I'm sure it was as simple as that. <laughs> Just <laughs> it's not simple, but it's not com- it's complex, but it's not complicated. You know, one thing happens, then the next thing happens, then the next thing happens, and problems you're dealing with, like somebody tells you one story, and then somebody else says, like in one case, there was uh, where Royal is. And his friends, they go snow climbing, then they quit that for the day. And they drive down to, through the Pacific Palisades intending to go to the beach. And they see this enormous dirt pinnacle. And they stop and decide to climb it. And the, the highway backs up with people's, you know, rubbernecking while they're doing it. And the cops come, you know, Royals on top. And they, they say, you know, there's all these reports of like, who said what? And the cops said this. No, they didn't. And then I've had two different people tell me they were there. The other people say, no, they weren't. And the one guy says, well, we had to be there because it was me. I remember it and with my car we were in and I was driving it. <laughs> so you have to, you know, these sort of larger than life characters, you know, they, uh, they often gather these stories around. People want to be in on them. And like, we don't always remember things accurately even in our own lives. I mean, I saw a climb I did with the Canadian climber Peter Croft, and he, I saw him in a film about the climb, and he was saying, we went to the base of the climb, and it had been some project I've been trying a lot, and a lot of other people I knew were trying. And Dave said to me, "You okay, Peter, you can do it, but you, only, you can only try it once. If you fall off, you have to walk away forever. And for the life of me, I, I can't remember saying, I'm not, I'm not saying he, it's, I didn't say it. I mean, that's like, that's slightly cringe at having said it, but I can't remember it. Right. So, you know, in a, in a way we write these things into these stories as stories also that tell more about us maybe as, you know, young and competitive or, you know, how, whatever it is, you know, I think, but I think, you know, some of the stories that I've heard about Liz, for example, that just didn't seem right. They were very misogynistic and so on. And like Liz, who's an extremely bright and straightforward person, just said, that's ridiculous. I never would have said that. It's like, okay, I'm giving that one to Liz. It was wonderful, just wonderful, energetic person with an incredible memory. Okay, so as we kind of wrap up, I wanted to ask you one question that I think kind of we've been, you know, saying throughout this entire interview, but I just wanted to ask you directly to see like kind of how you articulated this, like what should Royal Robins mean to modern climbers? You know, especially I think maybe people who are maybe just so invested in the comp world or the gym world or just like sport climbing specifically or something like that might feel pretty divorced from you know, especially his initial tactics, like very, like imagining big wall climbing, like he like created big wall climbing in Yosemite. Does he still have relevance? And what should Royal Robbins mean to modern climbers in general? Well, everything really. I mean, the word relevance is kind of, I find it kind of, it's a tough one to measure, but you know, this obsession with free climbing heart roots on, on El Capitan, there would originally not have been any of those Roots as they are known, if it hadn't been for Royal Circle, and certainly you know, Royal was right in there trying to do, trying to improve on their style, you know, going faster, using less bolts, and so on. That was this was a stepping stone. This is without this without the Salathay Wall, and you know, these kinds of these kinds of routes uh, without seeing can I go up there and solo that? Can, can I even do it continuously with? A single party, like as in the second set of the notes, he is the foundation stone on which this, that kind of thing is laid in terms of, of, of bouldering. Royal invented the American, he was the first American I know who went on a road trip to try to stop in on all these local climbing areas. And, you know, on his greatest trip in the excerpt that's uh, in this year's American Alpine Journal, the high point for him was a boulder prop thimble in South Dakota. And he was like more disappointed by not being able to do the thimble than he was by not being able to do any of the long routes. He didn't do that summer, I believe. And clean climbing, 
you know, we now have incredible clean climbing equipment. He started, he started that. The presence of women in climbing, he was very, very forceful about that. And he was analytical about it too, the way that, you know, if two men do a climb, no one asks if, well, who led the crux or who did most of the leading? Or if a woman's there, we're assuming she, she's not really adding much to the climb. So the, the acceptance of that, and I think also like just clean climbing fed into that whole adding an element of care and gentility, it's slowing down making it all less forceful and more focused on the rock. You know, the fact that American cliffs weren't subjected to the same thing that European cliffs were subjected to with fixed equipment and this kind of thing, that uh, the grade system, the all-pervasive grade system, that was him, right? First, free, you know, the idea that, you know, there's a difference in American climbing between a climbing and free climbing, any numbers, number of things. But I think just his journey in life, his creative journey as a climber ought to make anyone pause and think like, if this guy could make this, this kind of ha happen and wring this much out of all this for himself and for everyone else, you know, that's inspiring. But I agree, not everyone knows as much about Royal Roberts as, as they should. Yeah. Well, so thank you so much for spending so much time giving us a behind oh, the you. scenes glimpse, you know, of the process of the book is some of your insights about making the book, but also just like um, these stories that are really beautifully encaptured in the book that people should definitely grab a copy of and read. Thanks so much. This episode was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. If you want to learn more about Royal Robins, grab a copy of David Smart's book, Royal Robins, The American Climber, at mountaineers.org books. If you want to hear more stories from the legends of climbing, explore the AAC's legacy series on our YouTube channel.